2: And I think that's where like progressives could maybe really distinguish themselves on this issue because theoretically you do care about people who are marginalized and made vulnerable. And it's really easy to fall into the right-wing tropes
1: um, Mm. that,
2: you know, take all the focus off of the people who are actually experiencing harm and getting like hyper-focused on this like imaginary shadowy enemy. Um, For all of the like 20-something years that supposedly human trafficking has been a priority for the U.S. government, um, the numbers of... With traffickers, what they say are out there, has never matched.
3: Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we talk to journalist and author of "Playing the Whore: The Work of Sex Work," Melissa Jira Grant about Bob Kraft and the sting operation in Jupiter, Florida at a massage parlor where there were accusations of sex trafficking that the owner of the New England Patriots was involved with. And we're going to get Melissa Girogrant to unpack that entire story in a way that you have not heard on just about any other outlet. Also, I've got some choice words about the NBA and whether or not they have a mental health problem. I also have a Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Award and more. But first, let's go to Melissa Jira-Grant. So,
0: my first question is, uh, what was your reaction when you heard about the Bobcraft story?
2: Honestly, my my first reaction was like, oh God, here we go. You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. one of these big headline-grabbing national kind of sex work stories that still appears to be mostly about sex work and not necessarily about human trafficking um, just to put that out there now I think this is like the worst stage on which to try to take these issues apart whether we're talking about sex work, whether we're talking about um, celebrity customers or you know immigration, the specter of trafficking like this this is never when, we are at our best, if that makes sense. Like, I, I was just in Queens Criminal Court, like the week before the story broke, uh, reporting another story and watching uh, young women arrested, accused of being engaged in prostitution and massage businesses and fleshing Queens, all of whom needed a Mandarin interpreter when they approached the bench. Like, this is a day in and day out reality. And I just felt like this is just going to be the most sensationalized version of that. Um, so I, I logged off for the day. I did not want to see any of the immediate reaction to it, whether that was from, you know, people in the political world or the sports world, or even the the trafficking world. I just had to bench myself.
0: When you say, oh, to use a sports term. Uh, Uh Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. Um, when, When you said it's not, um,
0: us at our best, what do you mean by us?
2: I mean, me as a reporter, I will include myself in that, like, so the media and then I think sort of like the commentary yet, right? Like everybody who has an opinion about something in this, whether it's like what law enforcement should do about trafficking, whether that's however they feel about the New England Patriots. Um, I grew up like 20 minutes from Foxborough stadium. So I like conveniently could section off that entire part of the story and just be like, that's not, uh, I'm not going to go there. But you know, the, yeah, this, this, isn't, this isn't a great opportunity to sort of be really honest about, you know, the reality of the story as far as I can understand it, which is you have a series of pretty mom and pop appearing businesses that may or may not have been fronts for commercial sex, um, where it doesn't seem like they were great places to work. But we don't actually know because rather than sending in OSHA, um, you know, Florida sent in police. So, it, you know, even for, like, somebody in the media who covers this stuff, like, I am at a loss to tell you what actually happened, um, because all that we have to go on right now are police reports and police statements, which, as this thing has sort of unspooled over the last week or so, there are so many inconsistencies in those as well. Like, there are no trafficking charges as of this moment, even though we were told there were. Um, so that... Yeah, it it's so challenging to even say what actually happened here when you can only go on the word of, of law enforcement.
0: Yeah, and and why shouldn't in the in the general sense, not just in this sense, but why shouldn't we tr- we um trust law enforcement or why should we trust and then verify law enforcement when it comes to issues around when when they talk about human sex trafficking?
2: For law enforcement, you know, to the frontline response to human trafficking, that doesn't necessarily mean that, like, what they're going in, what they care about, what they're looking for are the same things that other people might find interesting or important, right? So their primary concern is not necessarily the well-being of people who work in these businesses. They may say that it is, but then they do things like surveil them having sex with customers for money for money or lock them up and press charges against them unless they agree to participate in an investigation against their employers, which is happening here. Um, you know, there's this, they see this as just a crime scene, and they see the individuals engaged the individuals that work in these businesses as, you know, just part of like a racketeering or money laundering scheme or possibly even a human trafficking scheme, though there's no evidence to support that. They're not thinking about like the broader lives of these individuals, you know, like the women that are, are sitting in jail right now in Florida uh, who work for these businesses not as management exclusively, like they were also engaged as workers. They were providing services or the police say they were providing services. Um, And that's really interesting to me because that means that even for all of their rhetoric of, you know, we busted this criminal conspiracy, this criminal network, um, it seems like mostly that what they've got is, you know, middle management and middle Mm -hmm. management and small businesses who are also providing services to customers themselves. Um, So their vantage point you know, it's, they they want they want this to sound, I think, more serious than it is because it justifies the time they spent on it, the money they spent, posing as customers, installing video surveillance, all of that. Uh, they can't just wash their hands and go home now and say like we didn't find what we were looking for. Um, it, they still haven't, but they're 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 claiming that they're going to if they can just you know keep these women incarcerated long enough to get them to comply.
0: And of course, uh, they now also have to justify the fact that uh, a billionaire owner of a professional football team was caught up in the sting. I mean, don't you think that's part of their, their calculus in terms of playing this up, is this massive human trafficking ring? Because for them to not just justify the expense, but justify embarrassing this, you know, pillar of the community or what have you, and justifying, you know, chopping away at his privilege, his wealth privilege, his all of his privileges... Uh, do you think that's part of it as well, that they need to play this up as like, well, it's worth it to embarrass this person because this isn't just a case of sex work?
2: I wonder. I mean, part of it is he already served his function for them, right, which was to be a really famous person to hang this operation on so that it, for example, would end up on the front page of the New York Times. Um, Generally speaking, like, prostitution raids or even trafficking stings don't merit front page coverage on the New York Times, particularly when they don't have it in New York. Um, you know, it's, he was useful to them. Robert Kraft was useful to them to, to make this play out on a national stage. And that's a strategy that isn't just confined to law enforcement in Florida. I've seen it play out in Washington State and other places where they believe that um, they – the purpose of these operations isn't just to break up um, a prostitution business or a trafficking operation but it's to go after the customers they call this end demand as a strategy and, and it's it's a failed strategy because it still requires them to go after the people who work in the businesses in this case mostly women immigrants many of whom don't speak english um folks who have perhaps dubious um legal status to remain in the us because of their immigration status like they they've now kind of they can pretend that the the guys that they arrested, um, like Kraft, are just sort of, like, already dealt with, right? Because the the point of him was essentially to perp walk him, and they've got that. Whether or not he pleas out, whether or not he pays a fine, like, they don't often come back to see how these cases resolve. And in all likelihood, he'll probably be penalized far less than the women who worked in the businesses themselves and and of course like the police are making all these contradictory statements about men like him right like these guys are the worst of the worst they're like what create demand for these horrible businesses and you know create conditions tantamount to slavery for these women um but the reality is like those women have already been punished and done more time in jail than Kraft ever probably will and that's not to say that he should Right? I'm just saying it doesn't match what police have have told us, like, who the real perpetrators here are.
0: Now, agitating the populace about human trafficking when it's actually uh, sex work and not, like, a slavery ring, uh, that's particularly common around the Super Bowl, isn't it?
2: Yeah, there's it's funny the Super Bowl trafficking kind of legend or mythology has evolved over the last few years. Like I remember when you went on the listening to theory and talked about this, right? Like there there was this this shift over the last few years. I think um, from the Super Bowl is the largest single human trafficking event in the United States all year, which it is definitely not. Um, to still wanting to use the Super Bowl as an opportunity to raise awareness. It's sort of like arresting craft, right? It's like here's this bold name, this thing people are paying attention to and just hook your issue to it.
1: Um,
2: and so they'll say, yes, you may have heard it was the largest human trafficking event because we've been telling you that, but now we're going to tell you that we're just using it to sort of raise awareness. <laughs> so even in the in this wing of sort of the anti-human trafficking world, and it's not like there are many people who are doing work against Human trafficking. Who think and always thought that the Super Bowl thing was bogus and was overhyped and didn't actually result in, you know, making anybody's lives any safer. Also overlooking really poor, if not illegal, um, labor practices in and around sports. Right, the people who are working in these stadiums, the people who come in to do sort of itinerant labor around these massive events, um, the players themselves. Like, the, you know, it's it's easy to sort of like displace the bad onto Um, the traffickers who are supposedly operating at the periphery Uh, so it's fascinating and you see it around like you know the olympics as well right like this is this is a trope this it's something about masculinity i think like all these men in this one place but you know in terms of how these things really play out it seems like what people are mostly focused on is the actual sporting event and that's taking up most of their energy um and it's there isn't a spike in increase um in, in sex work or other kinds of commercial sex during these events. But it sounds good, right? It sounds like it might happen, but it, mm-hmm. it doesn't.
0: Now now you're you're obviously not not saying that uh the kind of human trafficking that the police described uh doesn't exist, but what is the best response to that part of the sex work industry?
2: This has been the hardest thing about this story to get really clear about with folks. Like my my point my point of view on this is whether or not human trafficking occurred in these particular businesses in Florida, the tactic of going in, um, posing as customer, deceiving the women who work there, engaging in surveillance, including things like following one of the women when she went to the store to buy condoms so they could use mm-hmm. that as evidence. Um, You know, purchasing condoms is not evidence of anything but purchasing condoms. And maybe you could say that, you know, it indicates that somebody is engaging in sex, but then to jump from that to commercial sex and then to jump from that to coerced into engaging in commercial sex to be trafficked. um, There's a lot of leaps happening here. But put that aside for a second, right? Like, say that is happening. Say the police were 100% correct that this was the, the worst of the worst, that these women had no rights, they had no recourse. Um, I don't believe, and many people who do work around human trafficking would say this as well, that law enforcement are, are capable of actually delivering people rights. Um, the resting people is not a form of rescue. Even if they tell us that they are treating those people like victims, the reality is arrest is really traumatic. And particularly if you think that the people that you are going in there to rescue, quote unquote, um, are, are victims of trauma connected to their trafficking that they may be experiencing, then how do you justify this other traumatic experience? You know, one of the things that um, the Vero Beach police say is that in a, maybe a two month period, they, they claim to have um, evidence of 140 sex acts. Um, if they believe the women who were working there were forced to work there and they just gathered passively evidence of 140 sex acts, um, they didn't even gather evidence of trafficking, right? That's just evidence that people are having sex on video and they caught that. Um, but if they believe those women were being victimized in those acts, like again, how do you justify this kind of excessive law enforcement response? Um, there are alternatives, you know, like people could, for example, take a non-law enforcement approach that looks at people's, um, you know, the actual conditions of where they're working. Like, regardless of, like, the work that they are doing, um, the reality is, like, people have a right to work in fair conditions. And, like, maybe the issue is, like, the people who are employing these folks um, in massage businesses are being deceptive with them about their immigration status and they're making them think that, you know, they have to work for them, or they can't legally stay in the country, or maybe they've incurred some debt to them for bringing them to the country. This is all hypothetical, but these are things that have happened. Like, you can address those things without sending in the police. You have options. Um, but, you know, it's the police is the showier, using the police is the showier response. And in some ways, an easier response when thinking about, um, in this case, the la- labor rights of, of migrants who, you know, are not necessarily going to be in a position to advocate for themselves because they're already fearful of being on the radar at all. Um, And then the police sort of manipulate that and say like, Oh, these people are voiceless, right? They're not voiceless. It's just that Mm -hmm. like we aren't investing in actually improving their lives and arrest is not improving. Arrest can't improve anyone's life.
0: And there's one more angle on this. I wanted to ask you, and that's the way, this because uh, i'm sure you've heard this too a lot of very well-meaning people who you know decry sex trafficking and feel like they're on the side of the angels when they're you know speaking about these instances and trying to rescue these women and this whole language around that and don't realize to the degree to which sex work is being criminalized that these women's lives are being made more difficult and and even on, a, on sometimes an, an unimaginable scale But this human trafficking language is also used by the right wing. Uh, Cindy McCain comes to mind, Um, and particularly in terms of, of like, foreign policy. Can you break that down for us a little bit so people can understand just, you know, how this sex trafficking and and the, the language around it can be a Trojan horse for some really dangerous ideas?
2: Yeah, this is something I've been working on a lot at the appeal because, you know, we're in this moment where we have a president More than any other president, I think, who talks about human trafficking, but only talks about it in the context of attacking immigrants and putting forth some really racist ideas about who immigrants are and what trafficking looks like. Um, And you saw that with Cindy McCain, maybe in a milder version of it, but when she engaged in racial profiling at an airport and reported on a mixed race family to the police, believing that there was trafficking going on. That's just the shade of degree different, and you know, when it comes even to people who might identify as progressive, um, they also play into these tropes or fall into these tropes that, you know, it, it to me it just seems like a form of scapegoating. Like it's really, it's a lot easier to to sort of um, turn this into a, a way to crack down on people that you already don't want around, right? Whether that's poor immigrant women, um, whether that trans women who don't have any other economic opportunity and are engaging in sex work for whatever, you know, whatever degree of choice, circumstance or coercion they're facing, um, it's really easy to sort of create this, like, this shadowy enemy of, like, the vast criminal network of traffickers and, and focus on that. And I think that's where, like, progressives could maybe really distinguish themselves on this issue, because theoretically you do care about people who are marginalized and made vulnerable. And it's really easy to fall into the right wing tropes
1: um, Mm. that,
2: you know, take all the focus off of the people who are actually experiencing harm and getting like hyper-focused on this like imaginary shadowy enemy Um, for all of the like 20 something years, that supposedly human trafficking has been a priority for the U S government. The numbers of, of traffickers that they say are out there has never matched the numbers that they claimed were out there. And likewise, the number of people that they say are trafficked. Um, even if they're right, that there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who are trafficked, and they are failing to find those people, um, you know, that that means that they're also failing to serve and help people, right? And I'm, I'm not saying they should go out and sort of, like, invent victims. I'm just saying that, like, this is – just this, the, what they say doesn't match up to reality, whether that's on the right or the left. You hear the same talking points.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, I I did want to ask you uh, just to wrap up this part of it. You mentioned early on about when you first heard the Bob Kraft story, uh, wanting to just like, you know, hit the bench, hit the showers, not engage with this thing because it would be, you know, the worst of this kind of coverage. But as the days go on, do you think this um, case actually now holds an opportunity to educate people about some of these realities?
2: I think I mean, now that, that we're I mean, part of out I'm of the heat of it, yeah no, I know i think I think it's always the day one commentary that's like the worst, mm-hmm. and also it takes some time to learn what really happened, you know you you can't uh on the demands of deadlines, necessarily figure out what really happened in these cases, and it's only been you know now that I've been able to sit and look at the police reports and affidavits and the warrants and like see some of the documentation of what the police say they did, um, which is already more complicated and nuanced than the ways it's been reported on. But this stuff takes time to sort of like sink in and, and process this information. It's going to take time to hear from the women who were arrested, who are still involved in criminal cases. You know, I, I would hope that people don't move on just because, um, you know, the news cycle moves on the famous people's names are out of the press. That's what I meant by sort of just wanting to stay the hell away from it mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> because
2: like you can't you can't get into the these issues, but I think talking about it as something that um you know isn't just about those famous men but that is about the people who are sitting in jail right now that's that's where I think the focus should be. You know, what happens to them? When are they going to get out? Are they going to be able to allow, be able to stay in the country if that's an issue? What other work opportunities do they have? Are they safe in that community now that their mugshots and names have been plastered everywhere? And I know they did that to the men too, but some of, you know, those men probably have more resources. Um, they've already filed injunctions to prevent, you know, the video, for example, being released. Um, they, they can do more to insulate and protect themselves than these these women. So, yeah, I, I would hope that now that, you know, we're a couple weeks out, the focus can really shift to them.
0: Now, I, I'm going to cut what I'm about to um, ask you right now, just so you know. Okay. Um, uh, just so you know, uh, it, it, we could stop the interview here. I could ask you just one last closing question, um, or I could ask you about the Kamala Harris op-ed. But I wanted to be respectful of your time, and I didn't know if you had time just to
2: yeah, we can keep answer going. a couple
0: questions about that. Yeah. Okay, great. I shall cut that, that that will be cut. Don't worry, this whole part, the little thing here, this little awkward interlude. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, then I'll just say, well, thank you so much for talking about um the Bob Kraft story. I also wanted to get to an op-ed you just had in the Washington Post about Kamala Harris, uh, Senator Kamala Harris from California. She's, of course, running for president. Um. And her um, intersection with this world of sex work, can you talk a little bit about what her position is and what makes it Uh, interesting and how far maybe it still has to go?
2: Kamala Harris was my DA. That's a weird thing to say. I lived in San Francisco when she was district attorney, um, before she went on to become attorney general. You know, she's a career prosecutor, not just as like an easy phrase, but like for real, this is like what she has devoted her life to. And right up until, you know, arriving in Congress, um, she was pursuing cases. Um, One of her big kind of uh, boogeymen or enemies uh, was Backpage, the website where sex workers placed advertisements for their own work. Um, Kamala Harris tried to prosecute the people behind Backpage several times. And the failures actually of those prosecutions is what got us into this situation where now with this legislation, SASTA um, that passed last year, President Trump signed it in April and almost immediately other websites that sex workers use not just for ads but also for you know talking about workplace safety even doing political organizing they saw that content disappearing so sex workers place a lot of blame on kamala harris for just making this like a moral panic even more so and like giving it also this sheen of um you know progressivism right like she mostly talked about this and and still talks about this as something she did to fight human trafficking. Um, But, you know, the reality is these websites, if you take down a website, it doesn't actually do anything to make the lives of people who are trafficked any immediately better. And it might even push that kind of activity further underground where it's a lot harder for people to find help. Um, So she is now, as she is, I think on a couple of issues, trying to sort of like put some distance between that, reality and how she wants to be perceived right now. And so she was asked by the website, the root if she supported decriminalizing sex work and the way that she answered it was very confusing. Um, On the one hand, she claimed that she always opposed the idea of arresting as she called them prostitutes. Um, And she talked about them exclusively as women. Um, But I know, and and I hope more people know, and this is why I I wrote this op-ed like, when I lived in San Francisco, when she was district attorney, um, the city considered a ballot initiative that would have ended sex work arrests in the city. So it would have ended arrests against the people that she said she opposed arresting. Um, and she opposed that ballot initiative. And she said mm. that if it were to pass, it would roll out a welcome mat for pension and prostitutes to come to San Francisco. So this it's like two kinds of confusing. Like on the one hand, she's, you know, presenting this very confusing position on whether or not she supports decriminalizing sex work. Just not wanting to arrest sex workers is not the same thing as decriminalizing sex work. But she also doesn't seem to understand that her past position also wasn't decriminalizing even women who are engaged in sex work. So what I think is interesting about this is that she even like went there You know, that she didn't laugh the question off as she did in 2008 when she said, this is just ridiculous and it's going to roll out a welcome mat for pimps and prostitutes. You know, Kamala Harris in 2019 actually feels like she has to engage with this as a real issue. And that's entirely to the credit, I would say, of the sex workers who have been organizing since FASTA to gain more political power, to gain more visibility as their online presences were being erased. Um, And have inspired a new wave of politicians to support sex workers rights like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, like Julia Salazar, like Jessica Ramos, who's also in state government here in New York, Um, people who support decriminalization, full stop, no hesitation, no qualifications, Um, it's it's their way of talking about this issue is very different than Kamala's. And I hope somebody, you know, who I don't cover presidential campaigns per se, but, like, I hope somebody who has that kind of access to her can, can get her to elaborate on this. And, and same for Bernie Sanders. He was asked, I think, on The Breakfast Club about decrim, and he didn't have an answer yet, he said. But I, I, it's wild to me that this is even, like, a conversation in 2020 mm-hmm. in the presidential election. And I think if even if, if Kamala Harris is just pandering, then it's the first time that somebody has pandered around decriminalizing sex work in a presidential race.
0: Well, I hope you take a moment to pat yourself on the back for that too, because I know a few people who've done more to raise this to a political question than you have.
2: Thank you so, so much. I I uh, take I take that to heart.
0: Please do. I'm glad you didn't go, no, 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 no. Because you, you no. absolutely you absolutely should take it to heart. Um Thank you. Now, before before you go, I, I do want to ask you one last question because I ask this of every guest. Um, as you're doing your work, as you're doing your reporting, your journalism, what kind of music are you listening to these days?
2: Oh, man. Um, so I was just doing this big story for the appeal about this New York campaign to decriminalize sex work. And I can tell you exactly what I was listening to because I, I – do you do this? Do you get into, like, a loop where you just put on, like, the same thing oh, yeah. until you're done with something? Um I have this playlist called Leisure. It's like a Brit pop throwback playlist that is essentially the set list from this one club in San Francisco that I used to go to. And so I'm listening to a lot of pulp, a lot of suede. So
1: um
2: Iggy, Bowie, that's usually like if I if I need to just sort of create like a warm kind of comfort zone to work in like those are always my go tos.
0: Amazing, yeah. The, the Bowie exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum was oh, unbelievable.
2: I wept. I absolutely. Yeah, wept. It was I had all the feels while mm-hmm. trying
0: to explain to my kids why I was getting so, you know, so emotional. So it was it's a, a du- dual. That's right. Oh hell yeah! Oh, has <laughs> gotta live. Gotta live. Yes. Well hey, thank you so much for the time. I really do appreciate it.
3: We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support the Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe, go to www.thenation.com/subscribe And now back to the edge of sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the NBA and mental health) Okay, look, a couple weekends ago, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver spoke as a panelist at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in Boston. He was asked by Book of Basketball author Bill Simmons why so many NBA players seem, for lack of a more exact phrase, unhappy. Silver's response was quite unexpected. Instead of a canned answer about how players are actually feeling hunky-dory and accusations otherwise were just fake news, Silver said... We're living in a time of anxiety, and I think it's a direct result of social media. A lot of players are unhappy. He then went on to speak about the depth of the sadness, isolation, and even depression many players feel. He also said that players sometimes reach out to him on the road to discuss their feelings. He said, I'm an anxious person myself, that's why the players like talking to me. Silver's response comes as more players are being open about their mental health challenges with All-Star Kevin Love penning a long essay and All-Star DeMar DeRozan opening up to the Toronto Star in the last year about their own issues with anxiety and depression. Yet not everyone was feeling Silver's support for players and their mental health travails. NBA Hall of Famer Charles Barkley said on the ESPN morning show Get Up, I think that's probably the stupidest thing I've ever heard Adam say. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard any commissioner say. Listen, these guys are making 20 $30, 40000000 million a year. They work six, seven months a year. We stay at the best hotels in the world. They ain't got no problems. That's total bogus. He then took a big shot at one of the most famous and famously unhappy-looking players in the league, Kyrie Irving, saying, Let me tell you something else, Kyrie Irving. I've never seen a person so miserable. He's got to be one of the most miserable people I've ever seen. These comments need to be repudiated. Depression and anxiety among players is not something to scoff at or shame. It looks more like an objective fact. It's a real product of their jobs, the isolation, the travel, the separation from family, the inability to connect with a rotating band of teammates. But it's also a product, as Silver hints at, of our broader society. It extends well beyond the ill effects of social media, however. After all, we live in a country that ever-greater percentages of people feel is headed downhill. Or to paraphrase the movie Deep Cover, always the same, getting worse. And it's not just NBA players. Damn near simultaneously with Barkley's rant, a new government study hit the news that shows more Americans are dying from drug and alcohol abuse and suicides than at any point in roughly the last two decades. To get perspective on this, I reached out to Royce White. A 2012 first-round draft pick by the Houston Rockets, White was bounced from the team because he was public and unashamed about his own mental health challenges. He sent me the following statement and asked that I publish it in its entirety. This is what he said. Adam Silver's diagnosis is accurate, though it's clearly not just the players. Coaches, refs, GMs, owners have also spoken about their mental health issues. The blame certainly isn't to be placed on social media wholly. In fact, it's flat-out dishonest for Adam to be the one saying this at all. Adam and I had this discussion through letter correspondence years ago. In 2012, anxiety and unhappiness was considered the anomaly issue, the Royce issue, that just had to be weeded out and proceeded past. Now it's generational. It's another way to stigmatize the issue and shift the accountability away from his own anxiety about how to deal with the problem. Social media isn't to blame. If he really believes that, why has the NBA boosted its social media initiatives tenfold? Social media itself and these times in general are a product of the angst of many generations. I was the advent of a new mindset and approach. They scoffed at it, Adam included. As a result of their ego, they're just now accepting the reality of something we could have been working since the first day I brought it up in front of the world. They're underwater in this domain and still haven't even realized they're wet. The NBA has come a long way on issues of mental health, but it still has a ways to go. Comments like Barkley's only increase the stigma. Silver should not only confront Barkley's diatribe, he should address the league's past dealing or not dealing with mental health among its players. As for social media, as Royce White points out, if that is so pernicious, then why does the league spend so much time and money to make its presence on social media so hegemonic? It's worth asking Silver that question. And it would be great to hear an answer. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubblegum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you the listener. So please go to patreon.com/edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com/edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a
0: huge
3: difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com/edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you, make no mistake about it. And now Back to the Edge of Sports Podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award stand up! got a couple of contenders, but it's got to go. I and mean, we're going to talk about this more next week, I think. But it's got to go to the U.S. soccer women who, are, who dropped a lawsuit on International Women's Day for equal pay. Uh, with their male counterparts. And it's really, really badass. So the shout out really goes to the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association. That's the union and representative of the U.S. Women's National Team. And they are bringing this lawsuit for equal pay. As I said, they did it on International Women's Day. As Minky Worden wrote, uh, so, wrote, the genius of them suing on International Women's Day is every news story between now and the Women's World Cup in France in June will mention the lawsuit and pay equity. Reminder, last Women's World Cup was literally on unequal playing field. It was dangerous turf. It was dangerous artificial turf. So, Minky Worden is absolutely correct. Big Just Stand Up award to to the women of U.S. Soccer. Uh, And this will be the story between now and the Women's World Cup. We're going to try to have more about this on next week's show. Also, Just Stand Up Award. Got to shout out Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for selling a bunch of his merchandise for almost $3 million. 234 pieces of memorabilia, including four of his six NBA championship rings. With the proceeds going to the Skyhook Foundation charity that helps kids learn about science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, And this is what Kareem said. He said, looking back on what I've done with my life, instead of gazing at the sparkle of jewels or gold plating celebrating something I did a long time ago, I'd rather look into the delighted face of a child holding their first caterpillar and think about what I might be doing for their future. That's a history that has no price. Hmm. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. My Just Sit Your Ass Down Award
1: Sit your ass down!
3: actually goes to NBA refs. And uh, here's the deal. Before the season started, people might remember, I picked Trey Young to be the Rookie of the Year, the Atlanta Hawks uh, point guard. And I was mocked for this throughout the year since Trey Young was traded on draft day for, for Dallas Mavericks star Luka Doncic. But recently, Young has been lighting it up, including a 49-point performance against the Chicago Bulls. Then last week, during another game against the Bulls, after he hit a, just an outrageous 28-foot three-pointer, he was, as Deadspin put it, ejected for the crime of staring at Chris Dunn's back for too long. I hate it when NBA refs do that. Let the players play, let the players stare, let the players talk a little bit of smack. Let the players shoot their 28-foot three-pointers and then drop a stare at Chris Dunn. Let's not make the story about you, please. So that's the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. NBA refs, take a step back and just sit your ass down. Well, that's all we have for this week's show. Thank you, everybody, for listening out there in podcast land. If you like the show, please leave a rating. Please Uh, write a little comment. Please do all the little things that make the algorithms of the internet push the Edge of Sports podcast forward. For everybody out there listening, big shout out to everybody. Stay frosty. Peace.